Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles again to Genesis chapter 1. We're in the never-ending series on authority. Well, our authority never ends. Why should the series? Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, during the uh, account of the story of creation, tells us, and God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. The original Hebrew on those uh, meanings on those words means that God created man an exact duplicate of himself in kind. So let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. The word subdue means keep it under your control. And subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. As we've said numerous times throughout this series, it is an undisputable fact that God created man for one purpose, and that is for man to have dominion and authority here in the earth. Unfortunately, it's... it's uh, Mostly an unrecognizable truth by most of the church world, the modern church world. Now, you know as well as I do that God sees the future and knows the future better than we know the past. God created man in his own image with full knowledge that man would fall and that the earth would come under the dominion of spiritual death. So... I think it's important for us to recognize that God did not say, let, man have, let, let us create man in our own image and let him have dominion until he falls. Dominion was not intended for until the fall. Dominion was intended for man to have as long as the earth exists. Let him have dominion. Psalm 8 talks about God creating man to have dominion over all the works of God's hand. God knew full well that man was going to fall and that sin would enter as a scene. God's will never changes because God never changes. If God intended for man to have dominion before the fall, he intended for man to have dominion now because his will never changes. Now, this idea that man is made an exact copy or in the image and likeness of God, and again, that means an exact duplication in kind. The law of Genesis is that everything reproduces after its kind, including God. God reproduced himself in man. Now, that doesn't mean that God made man omnipotent or all-powerful. It doesn't mean that he made man omniscient or all-knowing. It didn't make man omnipresent or all uh, able to be in every, every place at once. But that didn't keep man from being made in God's image. God was, was intending and performed a work to, of creation where he duplicated himself into this thing called man. Now that's what the psalmist in Psalm 8 refers to where the angels said, What is man that thou art mindful of him? I like to think of it this way. When God determined... In Genesis 1.26, that he was going to create man in his own image. The angels, who are not made in the image of God, they're spirit beings, but not made in his image and after his likeness. The angels look around and say, 
You're going to do what? You're going to make something called man? Now, whatever was here on the earth prior to the Genesis 1 account, Genesis 1-1 tells us God created the the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-2 tells us the earth became without form and void. Something had to happen to cause the earth to be in the state of chaos that we find it in Genesis 1-2. Well, the Bible gives us a few hints about that, but nothing really specific or detailed. But whatever was here, the Bible talks about beings that were here. The Bible talks about uh, merchandising that took place here during the pre-Adamic age. Whatever it was and whoever was doing the, 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 the buying and selling and all the other things that were going on was not man. Because when God said, let us make man in our own image, the angels are floored by that. You're going to make an exact copy of yourself. I used to say it this way. I started off saying it this way. God made man as close to himself as he was able to do so. But with God, all things are possible. There would be no inability in him whatsoever. So when God said, let us make man in our own image, he made him an exact copy. An exact copy. Now, most modern day Christians, maybe Christians throughout the ages, have had a hard time with that. We see that uh, in Jesus' ministry, when he identified himself as the son of man and sent from God, there were several occasions where he said, I and my father are one. And on every occasion, the Jews took up stones to kill him. The idea that Jesus was saying, I'm in the image of God. Or when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Was something that the religious people couldn't handle. But I want you to look with me over to Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Jesus refers on one occasion when he was questioned about saying God was his father. And he and his father are one. He refers them back to the law, an Old Testament scripture that's found here in Psalm 82. And his point is, it says in the law that you are gods. And he understands and they understand that the reference is he's talking about people, talking about man, mankind as a whole. And God refers to mankind as a whole as gods. So Jesus makes the point If it's written in your law that man was made as gods here on the earth, why are you upset that one that God has sanctified would claim to be so? But I want you to look at at, uh, Psalm 82. Let's start reading in verse 1. We'll just read the whole thing. This is a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Now, if you've got a strong concordance, you'll notice that some of these words are used multiple times. The word God is the word Elohim. Elohim standeth in the congregation of the mighty. The word mighty is the word El. It's the prefix of Elohim or the first part of the word Elohim. It means strength, but specifically the strength of God. So where where it is translated mighty... I don't have a problem with that translation, but it's talking about mankind. 
It's talking about God stands in the, in the midst of those who are mighty, the mighty ones of God. Well, who are the mighty ones of God? They'd have to be the ones that are created in his image, wouldn't they? The greatest of God's creation here on the earth, which is man. So it says, the Elohim standeth in the congregation of the mighty, the mighty ones of God. He judgeth among the gods. Now, this second time the word gods is used, or when it's used in the plural, it's the same word as God in the beginning of verse 1. It's the word Elohim. So it's saying that God standeth in the congregation among the mighty ones. He judgeth in the congregation of Elohim. Now, some people would say, well, Elohim is referring to the Godhead, and every time the Godhead is referred to, it is the word Elohim. But notice the next thing it says. It can't be talking about the Godhead. Verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Now, who is the psalmist speaking by the Holy Ghost in accusation of? Jesus or the Holy Ghost? Well, that doesn't fit. No, it's talking about mankind. Now, here's, here's the point I'm trying to make. We'll read some more in this, but, the, but I want you to see this point. God doesn't have a problem. I know the church does. I know most Christians do. I know it's difficult for us until we renew our mind to it. But God doesn't have a problem calling you by his own name. Elohim standeth in the congregation of the Elohim. Because you are an exact duplication of God's kind. If the Bible is true. God made you in his image and after his likeness. Not omnipotent. You're not all powerful. Not all knowing. Not able to be in every place at once like God can. But you're made in his image. You're a spirit being. Who's had authority delegated to him over the earth. And so God judges among the congregation of the Elohim. Elohim judges among the congregation of the Elohim. The translators put the big G and the little G, but there's no big G, little G in the original transcript. It simply reads, Elohim judges among the congregation of the Elohim. Now, clearly, the point of this psalm is that God is calling mankind to live above his fallen nature. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Why? Because that's what God does. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them of the hand of the wicked. Why? Because God does. In other words, the Holy Ghost is is speaking on God's behalf, saying live up to who you've been made to be. Now, with that thought in mind, what would the world be like if the church lived up to the authority that we see exemplified in Jesus? We see just a little hint of that in the book of Acts, where it tells us in one place that they that turned the world upside down have come here also. And that's just a small group. But that group knew who they were. Now, let's keep reading a little bit. There's just another couple of verses in this psalm. Verse 5, they know not, neither will they understand. He's talking about the people that are operating unrighteously, living and acting below the image of God that they've been made to be. They know not, neither will they understand. 
They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. Now we know that when God gave commandment to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he told them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the uh, Amplified calls it the tree of the, uh, of the knowledge of blessing and calamity. Satan comes to them in the form of a serpent and tries to tell them that God wasn't honest with them, didn't tell them the truth. He said, in the day that you eat of the tree, God knows that you will be like gods. The word used there is Elohim, knowing good and evil. Well, according to God, they're already Elohim. And that's what Satan tempted them with. God knows that if you eat of the tree that he commanded you not to eat, that you'll be like God. You'll be like Elohim. And there must have been something based on their, her lack of understanding. She was deceived. Adam wasn't, the Bible says. But he still had the greater sin because he stood right there and let her do the wrong thing. So I don't want anybody to get the idea that I'm blaming the woman and not Adam. They both were equal partners in sin. But there must have been something based on her lack of knowledge or lack of understanding about who she was or who they were to be tempted with the idea of being like Elohim. Yet the reality is they already were. Now God told them, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. The thought behind that is there will be an immediate result. The Bible goes so far as to imply that it was an instant result. When they ate of the fruit of the tree, their eyes were opened and they immediately knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. Now the Bible tells us also in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that Satan is the God of this world. Well, we know that he wasn't created to be the God of this world. Man was created to be the God of this world. That's what having dominion over the work of God's hands would make you, isn't it? The God or the ruler of this world. So Satan wasn't created to be that. How did he become that? Well, right here in verse 5, it tells you. It says, the foundations of the earth are out of course. In other words, things changed from the original condition that God created the world to be. From the perfect state that God created the world to operate in in and under. Whereas Adam and Eve were commanded to subdue the earth, what they wound up doing was subduing the life of God and consenting to spiritual death ruling and reigning over the earth. They misused their authority. Satan didn't have any authority to use on his own. And so the only way that he could gain access into the earth in any significant way was to get man to misuse his authority, which he did. So that must have been the point where Satan becomes the god of this world. But the the phrase is a little bit misleading in my opinion because it doesn't say Satan is the god of this earth. It says Satan is the God of this world. It doesn't even say or mean that, uh, that Satan is the God of this world system. It literally says Satan is the God of this age. In other words, the Bible is telling us, the Holy Ghost refers to us, that the, the devil has a, an operating period. 
And when that time period is up, he's done. Now, what does it mean for Satan to be the God of this world? I used to preach it this way because I heard people, other people preach it this way. And I just assumed that it was true, as soon as they knew what they were talking about. But they come to find out, none of us did. I used to say that man lost his authority when he fell in the Garden of Eden. But that's impossible. That means the will of God would have to be changed. That means that sin would be greater than God's will and God's word where he declared that man was to have dominion in the earth. Furthermore, scriptures like Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I think it's verse 19, where God said, I set before you this day life and death, blessing and cursing, and therefore choose life that you and your seed may live. That would be a totally irrelevant scripture. Because if man had lost his authority to Satan, there's no way he could choose life. He'd be subject to the, to the devil's choice. He'd be subject to whatever the devil instructed or determined or directed in his life. It would furthermore nullify the scripture where God said in Numbers chapter 14, about verse 25, 26, somewhere around there. After the children of Israel rebelled in the wilderness of Kadesh Barnea. He said to Moses, say unto them, as you have spoken in my ear, so will I do unto you. Well, if Satan is the God of this world, meaning he has all the authority in this earth, then for God to operate in the earth in any way whatsoever would make God a lawbreaker. It would mean that God had violated his own word because he gave man authority. How in the world would God be able to, to take back authority that it was lost to the devil? in a lawful way if the devil really had authority here on the earth he wouldn't have been able to so when we say that the devil has authority on the earth or we talk about the devil's authority on the earth I think we give him way too much credit for what he can do now there are certain things that he can do there are certain acts of nature and so forth that he seems to be able to influence But even at that, when he tried to sink the boat Jesus was in, Jesus just stood up and rebuked the storm. So Satan doesn't have ultimate authority. Now, one of the things that we see that Satan does have authority in, in Luke chapter 4, when it tells us about the temptation of Jesus, after he'd been fasting for 40 days, one of the three things that the devil tempted him with was that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you the the power. The word power is used in King James. It's literally the word authority. All this authority will be given unto you because it's been delivered unto me. And to whosoever I will, I can give it. Well, who delivered that to him? Who delivered world government systems to him? God certainly didn't. Jesus doesn't call him a liar. He doesn't say, no, you really can't do that. You and I both know that's outside of your ability. It had to have been a bona fide temptation because Jesus answers it with the word. He says, get behind me, Satan. Thou shalt worship God and him only shalt thou serve. So how is it that the devil claims to have authority over the world systems? 
Well, clearly he must have some means of authority where the world systems are concerned. But is it absolute? Well, let's consider that for a minute. If Satan had ultimate authority over all the world systems, then we'd have one Hitler after another. And that's all there would ever be. It would be impossible for there ever to be a righteous king. It would be impossible for Israel to have ever had a righteous king if Satan had that kind of authority. But see, we read scriptures like where the devil tells Jesus, this authority has been delivered unto me and I can give it to whoever I want to. We read things like that and we think that's a blanket statement. Well, let's consider a little bit further. We know that Satan does influence world kingdoms. He influences rulers. We've got examples in several places where there is a a spiritual force operating behind certain kings and certain rulers. We know those spiritual forces are operating under the devil's authority. But how does the devil influence world kingdoms? He can't make people do things. He can influence them too. He can try to impress upon them too. He can tempt them too. But Satan's in the same position now that he was in the Garden of Eden. Unless he can get man to misuse his authority or use, his, use man's authority at the devil's influence, he's powerless. If that were not true, then there would be no possibility to resist sin. Isn't that right? If the devil could just make you sin, there'd be no temptation to it. He'd just be pulling your strings and making you do whatever he wanted to. But that's not how it works. He tempts you. He influences you. He tries to drive you into it. Yet you're the one that decides whether or not you accept and follow his influence. So the devil's authority cannot be absolute. Well, since we can resist sin, since we can resist the devil's influence, since we can say no to what the devil says or tries to get us to do. Let me, uh, I just thought of a story. I'm not sure I've told you this before. In uh, the early part of Lester Summerall's ministry, God sent him to the Philippines, just a young man. He was in his, uh, I think he's in his early 30s. And Lester was a different kind of person. God seemed to use him where the operation of the devil was concerned in a great, great way. There were some, uh, there was a period of time when I was working with Brother Hagen that we'd have Lester come and be one of the guest speakers at uh, camp meetings and seminars and crusades and stuff like that. And it was good news, bad news. The good news was there was always the power of God on display. There was always great teaching and great ministry that took place. The bad news is anybody that could possibly be influenced of the devil would show up. It was uncanny. They would come out of the woodwork. Well, anyway, in the early days of uh, Lester's ministry, he was in, uh, the Lord sent him to the Philippines, the city of Manila. And when he got to the city of Manila, everybody was talking about the demon-possessed lady. And apparently there was this young lady, little small lady, tiny lady. I met her toward the latter years of her life. She was this little frail, skinny woman, that was used of the devil in in some terrible ways. 
And she had the strength of 10 men. Literally, these big old burly cops and officers would try to grab a hold of her and direct her and take her from one place to another. She'd toss them around like rag dolls. They were some of the most spectacular manifestations of demon power through her of anything I've ever heard or heard of or well certainly never seen anything to that effect so Lester gets to town and it's all over the news it's all over the papers it's all over the tv about this demon possessed girl they got her in jail but nobody knows what they're going to do with her so Lester sees it on the uh, sees it on the headlines of the newspaper Reads through the thing, happens to see a TV report, a news report that same evening while he had the newspaper in his hand. Same thing about this girl. And everybody is just astonished at the stuff that's taking place. There would be bite marks that would appear out of nowhere on her flesh. I mean, different manifestations of the, of the devil that just were causing everybody's eyes to bug out, so to speak. So Lester sits there. Newspaper in his hand, TV in front of him, and says, well, somebody ought to go cast the devil out of her. And the Lord speaks to him and says, that's why you're here. He says, what do you mean, Lord? He said, I want you to go to the jail and cast the devil out of her. Well, he argued with the Lord for a little bit and said, I can't get into there. Look at all the people crowding around and all the newspapers and all the TV reporters and all that kind of stuff. That's a circus down there. I can't get close to her. Lord said, I've already made a way. They know you're coming. So he goes down to the jail and he says, Lord sent me here to cast the devil out of this little girl. People in charge start looking at each other sideways. Apparently somebody had said that they knew or heard or that the Lord had spoke to him some way or another that he was sending somebody down there to take care of her. Well, they said, tried to warn him, tried to caution him about the thing and he says I'll be alright don't worry about me so all these officers line up pull the door open throw Lester in there as quick as they can and slam the door shut behind him they don't want this woman to get loose well long story short Satan uh, Lester cast the devil out of that little girl young lady I think there were 26 or 27 devils that he cast out of Within a matter of 10 or 15 minutes, she was just as docile as a lamb. Such a a change came over her that everybody involved knew that it was the power of God. It opened up the Philippines to Brother Sumrall's ministry. He built a church there that's still going today. I think at one time his family members were continuing on with uh, pastoring the church. I think they still are today. But here's the point of the story. Sometime later, Lester talked to this lady, and he asked her. He wanted to know a little bit of how the devil worked and how the devil operated through her. And so he said, was there ever anything the devil told you to do that you didn't do? She said, oh, yeah, all the time. He said, can you tell me what you mean? She said, well, there were things that he would force me to do, but there were certain things that he told me to do that I just said, no, I'm not going to do that. Here's the point. Even in a possessed state, her authority outruled the devil. Well, then man could not have lost his authority to the devil at the fall. 
It's impossible. What did he lose then? Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 4. It's an astonishing thing to me, the immediate nature of man's fall. Here's what I mean by that. God didn't say in the day that you eat thereof, you'll slowly begin to be taken over by spiritual death. Little by little, day by day, you'll realize what you've lost because spiritual authority, your spiritual authority will not be the dominant factor. You'll begin to be ruled by your mind and your flesh. It was instant. There was no learning curve. It was an immediate thing. Notice what Paul tells us by the Holy Ghost, writing to the Ephesians, people that are saved and spirit-filled. Beginning in verse 17, he said, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. Now, what he's talking about is the unsaved. He's sent to the Gentiles, so that's why he refers to the Gentiles, but he's talking about the difference between those that are saved and those that are unsaved. So he said, don't walk like people that are unsaved. In the vanity of their mind, notice the phrases he uses. The unsaved walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now, folks, if you take apart those two scriptures, verses 17 and 18, you'll find out what happened at the fall. The mind became dominant. Now, the three words that are used that are significant are mind, understanding, and heart. Where it talks about the mind, it's the word that God, that uh, Paul uses by the Holy Ghost concerning the renewing of the mind, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and so forth. It means it literally means thought. It's the thought center, apparently. Where it says having their understanding. How does it, how does it read? Let me get back to it. Having underst- their understanding darkened. The word understanding means deep thought. It's a, it's a deeper level. It's a deeper level. It's not just casual thought. It's a deeper level. It's translated several different things. It's translated mind in certain places. It's translated heart in certain places. And it seems to refer to the inner man. Or a byproduct of the inner man at, at the very least. It's the scripture that Paul, it's the word that Paul uses when he talks about giving, let every man give as he purposes in his heart. It's the, it's the same word that Paul uses, or that, uh, that Peter uses when he talks about the hidden man of the heart. So it seems to be something coming from the inside, not the outside. So he talks about the, having their understanding darkened. Being alienated from the life of God. Notice the result is that they were, man was separated from the life of God. Every bit of man's intellect was a product of his spirit before the fall. That's not to say that his mind didn't work or it worked in an inferior way. I believe it worked even more efficiently. But everything that man knew in the Garden of Eden, he knew because of revelation knowledge. What he received from God. Not what he learned from experience. Experience was not a teacher before the fall. Experience just lined up with what they knew from God. 
I think one of the most significant parts of the Garden of Eden before the fall was that God walked with them in the cool of the day. I'd like tapes of those sessions. But what would that be about? Man was placed into the earth as a full-grown adult with an intellect that was able to, to name the bugs and all the animals and then all the critters on the earth without any help from God. God just brought the animals and everything that lived before Adam and says, what are you going to call that? Man had authority to name the bugs. Not God. Where did he gain the intellect to do some of those things? The names, especially in the original Hebrew that he gave the animals, are descriptive of characteristics that medical science is just now finding out exist about some things. Where did he gain the intellect for that? It was a product of the life of God. Folks, the thing that is important for you to know, you can have all the education, university education and higher learning and all that kind of stuff that's available. But the greatest knowledge is that which comes from within. Here where it says having their understanding darkened, Proverbs says that wisdom rests in the heart of him that has understanding. In other words, it's talking about how the wisdom and understanding are the principal things to get. Proverbs is all about that. But wisdom is a spiritual result or the result of a spiritual force and attached to understanding. You know as well as I do that there are a lot of people with book learning and educational degrees that don't have walking around sense. Big difference between knowledge and understanding. So it says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the God, the life of God, through the ignorance that is in them, the ignorance that is in them, the ignorance that is in them. Now, that's not the word stupidity, it's lack of knowledge. Through the ignorance that is in them, why is there ignorance within? Because of the blindness of their heart. Their spirits are closed. Now, the Bible talks a lot about knowledge. Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. God put a premium on, on knowledge. Isaiah five thirteen says something similar, but a little bit different. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. They're gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. They're gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. I want you to look at two scriptures real quickly with me before we run out of time. One is Hebrews chapter 1. We talked about being made in the, the image and the likeness of God. It says the same thing of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1. Let's just start in verse 1. Verse 3 is where we want to get to. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the worlds. Verse 3, who, speaking of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. It tells us two things about Jesus when he was here on the earth. It says that he was the brightness of God's glory. What does that mean? 
That means he did what God does. That's why he had to be anointed of the Holy Ghost. That was the source of the power that Jesus said that he did the miracle works by. He said, the Father in me doeth the works. I'm not doing them in and of myself. In other words, he's saying, I laid aside my heavenly power and glory that I had before the worlds began in order to come to the earth. That's not what I'm using to do miracles. But when he was anointed of the Holy Ghost, then the miracle working power came upon him so that he could be the brightness of God's glory. But notice the second thing that it says. It says, and he was the express image of his person. The express image of his person. That means nature. What it's telling us is two things. It's showing us that the anointing of God caused us to see what God does. That's the brightness of his glory. His actions were God's actions because of the power of the Holy Ghost that was upon him. But the express image of his person means that he was made in the image of likeness of God. Now, here's why that's important. The Bible says that Jesus was made sin for you so that you might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, that means you are the express image of God's person. You're a joint heir with Christ. You may not have the same measure of anointing that he had to be the brightness of God's glory here on the earth. None of us do. He had the spirit without measure, which implies you and I have whatever we have by measure. But one thing is undeniable, and that is if you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, according to the scripture, his righteousness made him the express image of God's person, which means that's what you are. Jesus had no problem saying my father and I are one because he was the express image of his person. Jesus had no problem saying the father hears me always because he's the express image of his person. Jesus had no problem saying I always do those things which please my father because he was the express image of his person. Just like you are. Now let me ask you another question along those lines. How successful do you think Jesus' prayer life was? Was there ever a prayer that Jesus didn't get answered? You know why? Because he was the express image of God's person. There was one prayer that came real close to messing everything up. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Well, it was possible. That was certainly possible. And it was up to Jesus whether or not it would take place. But he concluded or continued, he said, nevertheless. Boy, that nevertheless had made all the difference in the world. Jesus came within an eyelash of saying, let's do this another way. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, how is it that Jesus always knew what God would do in any situation? If it was because he had constant communication from the Holy Ghost who was directing him step by step and moment by moment, then there's no way you and I can do the same works he did. Because that's not what we have. 
But if he did the works of God because he was the express image of his person, meaning that he knew what God would do in any and every situation, then you and I can know what God would do in any any and every situation too. The Bible tells us as much in James chapter 5 and verse 16, last part of the verse. It says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, who's the righteous man he's talking about? Those who who are the express image of God's person. That's you and me. Folks, we need to take the understanding that we're a whiz in prayer. We need to have the understanding that every prayer we pray is heard and answered. Because we are the express image of God's person. Because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Now, I know that's hard to wrap your head around, especially if you come from a religious background. But it has to be true or else the Bible's a lie. Are you with me? All right, turn with me over to Second Peter chapter 1. I'll close with this. Second Peter chapter 1, I want to read the first three verses with you. Well, maybe verse 4 too. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And we know he's talking about people that are born again. And notice how he describes your born again experience. Notice how he describes your relationship with God. You have obtained like precious faith with the apostles. The idea that Peter and Paul had greater faith than you have is a mistake. The Bible says you've got the same faith. You've got the same salvation. You've got the same faith. Now, certainly faith can grow. And one person's faith can be developed to a higher degree than another person's faith. But no matter where you are, you can keep developing and keep growing. So Peter says, and I don't believe this is a casual comment. I believe this was instructed of the Holy Ghost, just like the rest of the letter. Peter says that this is written to those who have obtained like precious faith, the same precious faith with us. How? Through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there's a theme here that he's going to carry on for the next several verses about who we are and what belongs to us because we're in Christ. It would do us well to learn this and focus on it and meditate on it. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now he's talking to people that are already born again, already spirit-filled. He says grace, which I define as the finished work of Jesus, everything Jesus accomplished for us on the cross and through his resurrection. Grace and peace, well-being in every area. It's the, Hebrew, the, uh, it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom. It's the uh, Greek word erene. But it means the same thing. It means well-being in every area. It means the influence of God upon your life. 
so that it's reflected in peace and prosperity and well-being. So he says, grace, everything Jesus obtained for us, and peace, everything that brings you well-being or contentment here in life, are multiplied to us through the knowledge. Through the knowledge. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And folks, let me ask you a question. Is Peter just saying, yeah, God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, but, but, but we don't really mean all things there. We're just kind of making it sound good. Or does he really mean by the Holy Ghost that God has already given to us through the resurrection power of Jesus all things that pertain to life and godliness? Which one is it? I believe it means specifically what it says. Now, if God has already given you all things that pertain to life and godliness, there's not anything left for him to give you. Is there? Any chance that God's been holding back just a little bit? Just in case? Not if this is true. According as his divine power has already given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That means, therefore, that it's a matter of the exercise of your authority to use what's been given to you already. Is it not? Clearly not every Christian has all things manifest in his life. All things that pertain to life and godliness. That's clear. What makes the difference? It has to be the exercise of our authority to take hold of those things that have been given to us. That's the only possible explanation. According as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How are we going to exercise that authority? Through the knowledge Of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Through the knowledge. Of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Through the knowledge. Of him that's called us to glory and virtue. Now here's the reason why we're hammering down on knowledge. Here's the reason why the Bible hammers down on knowledge. Because through the fall of man. And still for the unsaved. Their understanding has been darkened. Because their minds are not renewed. And this is true for many Christians. They're still walking like unsaved. Like they're unsaved. Because they have not exercised themselves to the renewing of the mind. Their understanding has been darkened. And it has alienated them. The understanding. The darkness of their understanding. Has has alienated them. From the life of God. Well folks we know that when we're born again. The life of God becomes ours. But that doesn't mean you automatically start walking in every aspect of the life of God, does it? Isn't that a process? Isn't that a growth process? Well, what makes the difference in that growth process? The knowledge of God. In other words, your understanding being enlightened. You remember what Paul prayed for the Ephesians? And for the whole church? That God would give unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him? That the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. That we know what is the hope of his calling. 
what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and that we'd know what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us as believers. Folks, knowledge is everything. Knowledge is everything. So much of the church is praying for God to give them something that they already have. But why do we do that? Because we don't know what we have. According as his divine power is given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Whereby, for this reason, because of this, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these promises, by the scripture, by the word of God, you might be partakers of the divine nature. You might take hold of what's yours. Having escaped the corruption of the world that is in the world through lust. Folks, when Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and life. That means more than just the word is a good thing. Here's what I'm coming to understand. I'm coming to understand that the world was created for man to have authority over. To exercise his authority is God's finest creation so that the kingdom of God could be accomplished here on the earth. This world system, it's been corrupted, but this world system was created in the beginning and still operates now by the word of God. We didn't read far enough to see it, but in... uh, Hebrews chapter 1, where it talks about Jesus as the express image of God's person, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. It goes on in the verse to say, upholding all things by the word of his power. Every part of God's, uh, every part of God's creation is maintained and upheld by the word of God. This earth works on the word of God. That's why every way that God ever appeared to man... Every means and manner in which he injected himself to promise to bless man was all through the word. It is the word of God that is the source of our authority. Because we were born here on the earth, human beings, we have the opportunity, we have the potential for authority. But it's only through the word that we exercise that authority. It's only through the word that we exercise that authority. Remember the centurion in Matthew chapter 8? My servant lieth at home sick of the palsy. Speak the word only and he'll be healed because I'm a man under authority. I understand that authority is manifested through words. I understand that authority is exercised through words. What words? He's saying to Jesus, who was the word made flesh, speak the word only. And that which can belong to me, that which can overcome the corruption of sickness and disease in this earth that has taken hold of my servant can be alleviated that's why it's so important for us to gain knowledge of who we are to gain knowledge of what the bible says about god what the bible says about what belongs to us what the bible says about what authority we've been given it's all through the knowledge and notice grace and peace aren't added to you they're multiplied there's an exponential work of increase when you gain knowledge of God when you gain knowledge of God Jesus said in John chapter 8 
He said, if you continue in my words, then are you my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Freedom comes from knowing the truth. Knowing the truth comes from continuing in the word. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And then that means they would be victorious through knowledge. My people go into captivity because of a lack of knowledge. And that means they'd come into freedom through the knowledge of who they are in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for who you've made us to be. We thank you, Lord, that because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, we can say with confidence, confidence in your word, not confidence in ourselves, but we can say with confidence that we are the express image of your person. We can say just like Jesus said, he that has seen us has seen the Father. Thank you, Lord, that all that Jesus accomplished for us is made manifest in our lives as we put your word to work, as we believe it, meditate on it, speak it. We have the same spirit of faith that the apostles in the early church had, the same spirit of faith that Jesus had. We believe and therefore speak. Satan, we serve notice on you. We're finding out who we are. We're not under your authority. We're not under any of your power. We command you to take your hands off of our lives, our bodies, our finances, our families. Be gone in the name of Jesus. We're doers of the word. We're governed by the word of God. And the kingdom of God reigns in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. God bless you. Have a great week. You're dismissed.